and welcome to the 199th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Monday the 21st of August 2023 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. Today Donald and myself discuss an amazing text by the little-known Hong Kong-based left communist L.L. Men. We were made aware of the text by Herman Luer, the man behind the English translation of the second edition of the Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution. He's recently translated the text into German for the first time. L.L. Men was a Hong Kong-based left communist who in the 1980s corresponded and debated with various left communist groups of the time. We'll be discussing the first text from Men's Two Texts for Defining the Communist Programme, entitled The Capitalist Nature of the Socialist Countries, a Politico-Economic Analysis. You can find a download of the text upon libcom.org. Recently, I've spent a truly inordinate amount of time reformatting the PDF that you can find on libcom to being friendly for self-publishing. For those of you who, like me, prefer a hard copy, I've included a link to my version of the PDF in the show notes. The second part of this discussion will be released in a couple of days as a Patreon-only podcast. If you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to the Patreon, where you can get access to all those Patreon-only episodes and the Discord server. And if you'd like to find out more about the Socialist Planning Book project that Donald and myself are busy writing, head on over to theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com, where you can find links on how to support the project. Okay, to the discussion. So Donald, we were recently sent a text by Herman, Herman who translated the second edition of the Fundamental Principles, Herman Luer, and he has recently done a translation into German for the first time for this reasonably obscure text, I think it's safe to say. It is by a Hong Kong-based left communist from the 1980s, it's a book that's available. You can find a PDF of it up on, I think, Libcom called Two Texts for Defining the Communist Program. What do you make of this book? Yeah, very interesting. I was very, uh, very thankful to Herman for sending this on to us because it really stands out, I think, from everything I've read. It makes some really, really strong points on the whole question of whether the let's say, Soviet-type economy, USSR-type economy was state capitalist or not. So he, that, 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 that's kind of what he begins with. He kind of says, well, in this whole thing, and this, there's a whole milieu of different kind of ideas about what the Soviet-type economy was. Was it a de- degenerated worker state? Was it a non-mode of production? Was it socialism? Was it state capitalism? Or was it something else? And that's the, that's the question he sets out to answer here. And for me, he does a very, very convincing job. So... We'll see what the listener thinks. The book is actually made up of two texts. One of them is about the Russian Revolution. The first part that we're going to be discussing today is called The Capitalist Nature of the Socialist Countries, a Political Economic Analysis. And while that's like what he's after, he's after like about trying to critique the actual existing socialist states. In effect, what he does, though, he does an incredibly good job of kind of picking apart and clarifying value and value theory now he doesn't get stuff right everywhere but he you know he falls down in a couple of places 
But all in all, it's it's an amazing text and it's only maybe 50 or 70 pages long. But it really, to me, stands up there as like quite a good sister text to something like the fundamental principles. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And actually, I believe he did not read the fundamental principles, but he independently came to a lot of the same conclusions. And he came to those conclusions by, as you say, stepping back, first of all, to the basics of Marx's value theory, but he presents it in a way which is very interesting, kind of from at a very high level from first principles, first stepping through, you know, what is this about value commodities, starting with the commodity like Marx, the law of value, and then starting with the commodity again in terms of the socialist or Soviet type economies, and then from that basis going through, okay, what kind of economies were they? And yeah, I think he does a really effective job. Yeah, and he ends up giving it with a description of what he thinks the basis of a communist economy would be based on the critique of the Gotha program. But also, he did read a single article that was done by Paul Maddock Sr., I think, which gave the basic structure of the fundamental principles of breaking down, you know, how firms reproduce themselves into their fixed and circulating and labor inputs. And so he kind of comes up with his own terminology and discusses and develops that a little bit, certainly not to the same extent as the fundamental principles does. But, you know, he's both inspired by the basics of it and he ends up going in in, in very similar direction. Absolutely, yeah. And what I love about this text is, and uh, what's so unusual about it is, it's so categorical. He he doesn't hedge at all. He says, you know, a commodity economy has to be like this. It has to work in just one way. And capitalism can only work in one way, kind of at a, a very high level. And also socialism can only work in one way. And so that's a big, a very bold claim. But then he backs it up. So, yeah, we'll get into that, I hope, and uh, see what, what people think. Yeah, so... He lays out at the start that, like, that, you know, a scientific understanding of the capitalist method of production is, you know, it's a prerequisite for building socialism. That if we want to know how to build the next society, we have got to understand the current society. And the analysis that Marx gives us in value, you know, the analysis of the commodity, the value form, et cetera, et cetera, is what we actually need to understand. And he kind of makes the point that there is like huge confusion around value, what people think that value actually is. Definitely. And he he also uh, gives out a little bit about the current thinking in, in left communist parties or groups at the time. He says, like Proudhon, they affirm what they have to prove. So when they're talking about these categories, they make the assertions that they make about capitalism and about the, the Soviet type economies without any theoretical basis in Marx's economic categories. And so he's setting out to correct that. And the first thing he wants to do is talk about what constitutes capitalism and why it can only be based on value. And then furthermore, why if the economy is based on value, it is capitalism. So he makes that identity. He says, you know, a commodity economy can only be a capitalist economy. So starting at sort of first principles, he says, you only need two assumptions here. First of all, that there's private ownership in uh, the means of production. So private ownership, he, he points out, is not a legal statement. It's a social relation denoting exclusive, separate, private labor production processes. And then the second condition is that the production is happening for the purpose of exchange. So it's not like, for example, 
a few like separated private subsistence farms or something that are not really producing for the purpose of exchange, the production is, is for exchange, so predominantly. Now, only under those circumstances, human labor constitutes value and products constitute commodities, and they have to. And the reason he says they have to is this, that a commodity economy, just like every other type of economy, needs a basis upon which and a measure for which production can be calculated. You can go about production and then distribution can be affected that reproduces the productive economy. And all production requires the common input of human labor that takes that as, as given. But he says that private property excludes the use of direct labor time as the basis and measure for the economy. So the question is, why is it excluded? And it's excluded because if you're a producer that's performing private labor, you have your own little production process and you're making these goods for exchange, then what you're going to get back, what you require to get back from society is not your own contribution in terms of your direct labor time, but actually what your labor is worth to the society in terms of labor time. So, so let's break so this for, down. Yeah, break it down there. So like so he gives this example, he lays it out crystal clearly. So this may sound a little bit complicated when we say it, like so that you know it can be it can sound quite confusing. But if, for example, Donald is producing chairs and I'm producing corn, and Donald is producing his chair above average efficiency in the economy. So to produce a chair, it maybe takes him five hours of labor. And I am producing corn well below efficiency. Now, in a, in, a, in a market society, Donald will want what the average social worth of his chair is. His 10 hours of labor that he, he was going to exchange for my 10 hours worth of corn, he will, he will never exchange like for like his labor with my labor because in the marketplace, he could actually find somebody else with cheaper, with more corn for the same labor. So when the actual basis of production is based upon private property, it means that we will not be swapping direct labor time that we do, but we will be swapping it based on the average worth, you know, the value of the corn versus the value of the chair. And it's because that we are meeting each other in the marketplace as private producers that value becomes a necessity. Right. Exactly. A necessity. That's the key thing. So he says the first categorical claim he's going to make, and again, this is a well-accepted one for Marxists, but that there is no basis on which exchange of the products of private labor can proceed except for value. So it's it's the only possibility that socially necessary labor time. So what your private labor is worth to the society, not to yourself. And uh, that's, yeah, that's a key point. If you, if you take a step back here and say, okay, you have all these private production processes. Now, he gives a sort of numerical example, and he says you have a bunch of different private production processes, let's say, and they all have different productivities. Now, this is very good what he does. He avoids bringing money or anything else into it. He just says, don't worry, you know, don't worry about the rate of exploitation or the amount of wages people are getting or how hard the workers are being worked or anything. Just assume these productivities. These are the real productivities of different firms. And it takes a certain amount of minutes for them to produce the different goods that they're making. Now, from looking at that, you can calculate this socially necessary labor time. You can say, okay, what would it be for the given product? And by, by looking at it that way, you can understand that at the high level for the economy, the economy will have a given type of a given level of productivity for different kinds of products. 
And so that makes it very clear that if you're a private producer who wants to dispose of their product for something other than the value of the product, some price approximating the value of the product, you won't be able to do it. So this is why the goods are disposed of at prices approximating the values, because that is what it's actually worth in terms of the economy. That's the economy's ability to reproduce the, the reproducible commodity, right? And so in order for the production process, the particular production process to be reproduced within that economy, you'd have to dispose of it at or something like at its value. You know, in kind of a simple terms, it's like if I want to get somebody who, you know, somebody knocks on my door and says they'll wash my windows and they say, I say, well, how much is it? And they say, well, it's £10 an hour or £15 an hour, right? Like they can't say it's £150 million an hour. Yeah, right. The point is that the exchange ratios of reproducible commodities are something that objectively come about because of the requirement of all of the private producers to be able to have this measure upon which production and distribution can happen, right? Again, we didn't talk about the distribution yet, but again, there's only one way that the distribution can happen here. And the distribution can only happen on the basis of getting back from the society your own money, the exchange equivalent in terms of your own productivity, right? If you're more productive than the average, uh, you're going to be able to acquire more of that surplus. And if you're less productive, then um, you're going to be able to only get less. So he moves from this on to... He compares how society reproduces itself under commodity production, you know, private property relations, to how hunter-gatherers reproduce themselves and how they distribute their use values. Yeah, so again, he goes about this in a very similar way, and it's interesting because I hadn't seen this before. He, he, then, he makes a sketch of what sort of constitutes this kind of use value distribution under a communist uh, or a proto-communist or primitive communist, I suppose, society. So he, he gives a sketch and he says a sort of an, another numerical example where he has a certain amount of uh, some individuals from, let's say, this hunter-gatherer primitive communist tribal society. And he says some of them are, are hunting and some of them are gathering, right? And at different productivities, as it would be in a commodity economy, this is how you would think about it. So he has some people getting more, being able to get more apples, some people catching more rabbits and so on than others on a particular day. And so he says, if it was a commodity economy with private labor, you would have an exchange relationship between the rabbits and the apples, right? For example, you know, and he says that a different amount of social labor would thereby be contributed by the different producers. So someone who went out to, to hunt rabbits but didn't catch any that day would produce zero hours of social labor in a commodity economy. Uh, someone who gathered a whole bunch of apples would bring to the table a lot of social labor if it was a commodity economy. But he says, you know, in, in this kind of economy, in a socialist economy, the only way that it can reproduce itself is by counting the labor directly as directly social. And so the hunter that goes out to catch rabbits and doesn't catch any on that day does not get to consume zero hours of social labor. They get to consume the same social labor that everyone else gets to consume. That's the only way the thing will be able to work because it's a communal society that doesn't have private labor. So this is the point he's making. He's saying private labor, value, and money are all totally inevitable. They're just joined together. They, they, they exist together. Right. Uh, so like, so the hunter-gatherer who you go hunting for six hours, you catch six rabbits. I go hunting for, for six hours, I catch one rabbit. Hmm. You're not rewarded with the six rabbits. 
and I'm not rewarded, kind of, I'm not punished with the one rabbit. When we go to distribute the rabbits in the end of the day, they're all distributed equally because we've all worked the same amount of hours. Yeah. And you're not getting rewarded for being the better hunter than I am because things are not based upon that kind of private property relation. Your hunting is not seen as your hunting, but the community's hunting. Right, exactly. And if it was on the basis of value, then rather than that, what, what it would be is you would receive back in terms of distribution according to value what your labor uh, productivity was productivity turned out to be to the economy uh, or to the society yeah right so if we were to try and exchange our rabbits for apples you would get a lot more apples than i would right because you're getting rewarded specifically for your individual productivity and i am getting punished for my lack of productivity yeah precisely that's his point yeah so he steps from this argument then by showing how, like in Marx's terms, primitive communism, I don't like. I don't like the phrase. I don't like primitive. You know, I think it's quite pejorative these days. I like using hunter gatherer. Immediate return, say hunter gatherers or whatever. Then he goes on to why it is that under capitalist relations, you know, commodity relations of wage labor, private property, that even though that labor time is the basis of value, that we don't price things in their labor time we don't go into the shop and see a mars bar that's 0.24 hours of labor what we actually see it's it's 67 pence okay why is it that why is that money exists under capitalism okay so we we had mentioned already that the commodity economy needs to find something other than direct labor time to serve as its basis and measure and it finds value sort of spontaneously uh, when you have these private production processes and that there's no other basis on which production and distribution can proceed if you have private labor processes. Now, the value of a commodity can only be determined in relation to other commodities. So that's a kind of a kind of interesting point because of its nature as private labor. So the private producer doesn't know what the socially necessary labor time of their product is. They don't know what their private labor is worth to the, to the society, what their productivity is worth. And so value must and actually can only be and is expressed in its phenomenal form, as he says, which is exchange value and uh, can take the, the money form in a, in a real economy. The money form thus constitutes for a commodity economy that basis and measure and means by which production can be calculated and distribution can be affected because it represents the medium of being able to exchange anything for anything. So all of these exchange ratios that we get in terms of value are able to then be actualized in the economy right so like you and me were were involved there's a hundred of us that were all producing shoes right but i'm not aware of your labor inputs and you're not aware of my labor inputs and no one is recording all our labor inputs because we're all based on our it's all their own private information we may not even be aware of our own labor inputs we may not tally it right but it is still the basis of what value is and because we don't have this explicit record of all this stuff, that capitalism has evolved, it, ha- it was not a designed system, it has evolved, self-organized system. Because we don't have the actual labor content to price the thing on, it is a logical necessity that with this other, that the, the value form, the exchange value, when in terms of money, the price is what we use to, to measure the value 
in the real world, as it were. And yeah, interesting when you think about, um, this is me saying it rather than him, but I think it's interesting that, you know, that's something that has to be discovered. You know, that's something that the the producer, the private producer in, in a capitalist economy doesn't even know that they're discovering in terms of really what they're getting at is the labor productivity, what their labor productivity is worth in the economy relative to the total sort of social labor. They, they don't even have to be aware that that's what they're doing when they're when they're going to the market and, and making exchanges, but that is what they're doing. Right. Now, I think he gets something slightly wrong here when he talks about exchange ratios. So he, he says that the exchange ratios between commodities are determined by their value. So like that, you know, a coat is worth 10 yards of linen. But mm. in reality, the ratios, they're not really, the exchange value ratios aren't determined by their value. Like they're a bit correlated, right? But in, in the real life, they won't be determined by their value because there's so much other stuff like rents and supplies and demands and stuff coming in that just change them. But they will be highly there will be a, a correlation there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think if we're going to be uh, charitable and uh, and fair to the guy, you know, I, I'm sure he's he's giving this kind of very high level uh, examination. But yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, we should never be charitable, don't we? Should always oh. be uncharitable. <laughs> okay, on this podcast. Yeah. On this podcast. <laughs> on this company's podcast, charity is is a capitalist form. It's interesting because he talks early on about like how value is extremely misunderstood. And I think this is correct. You know, I've been writing a chapter on value theory for the book for the last God knows how long. And, you know, there is this thing he says here about it where he says, let me, I might as well read this quote. Might as well put it in his words and not my bastardization. He goes, value must count as one of the most, if not the most misunderstood or least or least understood categories of Marxist theory. What is it? Why? And how does it come into existence? I say existence, this is a, a parenthetically, I say existence, but it must be noted that value, like the category electromagnetic wave in physics, to name just one example, cannot be observed, i.e. it does not exist in the directly sensorily experienced world, which is why positive economics discards it as metaphysical. The consistent positivist would, if he is honest, have to discard all similar categories such as causation, gravitational pull, etc., etc., also as metaphysical. I thought that was an interesting point. Yeah, very, very good. Yeah, very well said. I would also add, you know, we talked about gravitation. It's also a field property, you could argue, uh, value. So I think that's a very interesting (laughs) point. Now Now we're getting technical here. Have you done field theory? No, no, so you're just you just pretending. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, because uh, when I did my maths degree, field theory was one that the theoretical physics crew would do, and you could do it if you wanted to. But like, I was I never studied physics at all, even basically, so I was afraid of it. But uh, so field theory was one of. We the... can take that out. Then I'm probably wrong when I said <laughs> someone will say, "What are you talking about?" Field no, no, no. It sounds sounds like it's about right. I was just kind of impressed. Okay. So he spends a bit of time in there also discussing Marx's critique of Gray's labor time to kind of central bank proposal, which, you know, he kind of centers it on this idea of directly social versus indirectly social labor. It's interesting, the, 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 the analysis where Marx was critiquing Gray's idea of a, of a central bank that would issue labor tokens so the idea is essentially that everybody would produce their commodities as normal 
in a private fashion, they would tell the central bank how much labor it took to produce their commodities. And they would receive back from the bank a certain amount of labor tokens that to match their amount of labor that they would do. And the bank would then collate all the various people who were making that commodity and average their time and come up with a price. So essentially, you know, like a kind of a, not crazily far from like the idea of the general ledger. But the point was that Marx was critiquing Gray for saying that he assumed that the labor was directly social, right? That you could keep private commodity production, private commodity relations and have directly social labor. And that is not how things work. Things would have to be based upon private property. You can't have the distribution element determining the production relations, but it must come the other way around. You know, Marx's critique of Gray is, you know, ironically, and sometimes I think, you know, very disingenuously put forward as Marx critiquing labor time accounting in totality. Yeah, Marx is pretty clear about this. I mean, unless you think he's just a totally inconsistent thinker who doesn't understand his own arguments, then uh, yeah, I don't, I don't understand how anyone could put forward that kind of uh, position because Marx makes it really clear his whole problem with this schema is that you have the private production processes and what you're effectively asking these people who are producing commodities for sale, you're asking them to, to receive back Less than they could have if they were being rewarded for their productivity. Yeah, precisely. You know, that's what it's really, that's what directly social and indirectly social labor in essence is about. You know, it's about rewarding people for their productivity or not rewarding people for their productivity, right? One is a communist basis and one is a capitalist basis. Now, people will say then, well, communism must be an incredibly poorly productive society if productivity is not a concern for the producers but you know as we will get into in great depth in the book we'll show how productivity operates in, the, in a different way but today is not the time to get into that Donald I don't think <laughs> no I think we need a much longer podcast when we get the book written we need like 24 episodes on that chapter so there's another great quote here where he basically kind of critiques both like Proudhon and the anarchist idea of that the problem of capitalism was that money was was the problem. And then he goes on also to critique Kautsky. I think I'll just give again this quote again because it's such a great quote here. Proudhon and his school, unable to go beyond surface phenomena, seeing the evils of money, seriously declare that money has to be abolished yet at the same time exalt commodities as the essence of socialism, inverted commas, totally failing to understand the inevitable correlation existing between commodities and money. Kautsky, on the other hand, seeing that value is congealed social labour, jumps to the conclusion that the reverse is also true, i.e. that congealed social labour must constitute value, and that since goods are necessarily embodiments of social labour, Value will, therefore, continue to exist in socialism, never understanding that congealed social labour is transformed into value only where private property exists. Again, that's a perfect way to put it. So when we look at Marx's critique of the Gotha programme, in in exactly this way, it abolishes value because it is the formalisation of distribution under conditions of communal production. So again, this is the problem with Gray 
and his idea is that he's talking about a sort of distribution socialist kind of distribution uh, under conditions of private production but the abolition of private property inevitably and necessarily it's argued here involves the use of direct labor time as the basis and measure that the production and the distribution is calculated and affected so what the, the way he's putting it is he's saying look what what marx proposes in critique of the gotha program is just what production and distribution means when a society with a division of labor no longer uses value and exchange value because it's no longer based on private property and private labor processes right herman sent me a private email there the other day and about what we were just having a bit of discussion about this stuff and there's a quote in here from engels to kautsky so let's give kautsky a bit of a a bit of a kicking while he's down is kautsky down i don't know if he's down so here's engels letter to kautsky i think this is in 1884 he says, but in fact, however, economic value is a category specific to commodity production and disappears with the latter, as it likewise did not exist prior to commodity production. The relation of labor to the product before as after commodity production is no longer expressed under the value form. So this is Engels basically saying to Kautsky, look, we're not going to have value. You know, we're not going to have value. It's not just not going to be there in, in communism or socialism. and." Kowski replied on the 10th of October, 1884, what, what you wrote to me about value was particularly stimulating. Unconsciously, an eggshell of the metaphysical view of things still cling to us here and there. Admittedly, it only needs a hint to slip off. And Herman said, as the GIC has shown in their critique of Kowski's later statements, it is apparently not so easy to slip off this fundamental misunderstanding. Yeah, <laughs> he was back to misunderstanding it again pretty soon. Very soon. It only took the slightest nudge for him to totally ditch all the theoretical bases that Marx and Engels built up for about socialism, you know, and their critique of capitalism. So the idea was a grey was that there was a central bank, right? And yeah. that everybody would produce. I would produce my shoes. My shoes would take three hours. And I would go to the central bank and say, these shoes took three hours to produce. Okay, and the central bank would give me labor tokens for three hours and the central bank would subsequently price all the shoes by, you know, averaging over the amount of labor time. And so the price of a shoe might be two and a half. But the thing thing is, is that I was still producing privately based on private property relations. And by they were Gray was trying to get the bank to basically determine it was basically trying to say, with private property, you can have directly social labor. Mm. And Marx was saying, well, really, you know, that's kind of back arseways, right? If you think about it, like if I was producing my shoes on one hour, why would commodity producers based on private property ever commit to directly social exchange? That's the key point, isn't it? The, what he left out was socialization of production. So the, the great example is he comes up with this concept, you know, which is, you know, pretty interesting concept, I think, you know, it turns out to be wrong, but he comes up with this concept whereby you can set up a kind of a central bank, okay, and the central bank will pay people directly in labor tokens for the amount of labor they take to produce. So I'm making shoes, it takes me three hours to make a shoe. Donald, it takes him five hours to make a shoe, okay. Now, when I make my shoe, I say I, it took three hours of labor for me to do it. I get, I get the three, I get three hour labor tokens for it. 
when Donald produces a shoe, he gets five because it took him five hours to do it. Now, the bank will, so our, our, our labor then is directly social. We're getting back exactly the same we put in. Okay. Now, the price of the shoe, as we can see in this example, would be, it would average four hours. So what the mistake that's been made is that Gray is assuming that the, the central bank can determine what directly social labor is. But if you had a system of private property relations, why would any private property producers who are more efficient than other ones ever sign up to get less from their production? So for example, if I'm producing more product productively than say another producer is, why would I not try and exchange my private, the stuff I produce with other more efficient producers? So I could get more use values for for my produce. So it's trying to make out that the distribution relations, so the central bank who's in control of distribution, would be able to control the production relations. But in reality, the production relations determine the distribution relations. Right. So what he what Ray forgot, or maybe not forgot, but what he overlooked was the socialization of production. Because the only context in which a more efficient production unit would accept those circumstances, as you say, to receive less, uh, would be under under some kind of socialized production system. If it's a private production system, of course, it makes no sense at all that the producers being rewarded for being unproductive. Right. The more productive producers, private producers, will always choose to uh, exchange with the other more produ- productive private producers, wasn't they? It's way in their interest. Why would you accept less use values in return for your shoes than more? Right. And uh, that system would break down very quickly and people would immediately realize it's to their private benefit as private producers to operate outside that system. He also says an interesting thing here, Donald, that we will be discussing in the book in, in quite some depth. But he talks about how, you know, there's this, you know, when Marx lists why labor time is not money. One of the things that Marx says is that they cannot be accumulated. And and LLMN points out here, and I think this is 100% correct, that that labor time certificates cannot be accumulated is not the essence of these certificates. Like that's not the essence of labor time certificates, right? It's that they abolish value, that they abolish the wage form, that they imply directly social labor relations and, and socialized property relations yeah precisely yeah i think the the concern that would be there in terms of the accumulation is really a concern about the use of labor tokens as capital could they in some way be used to reinstate private property relations you can imagine some some person some group get their hands on a lot of these labor tokens and then they're able to use them kind of as as capital in order to start something that's outside of the socialized economy so i think that that's what the concern was there but yeah, at, at first approximation, the, the problem that labor tokens solve is to affect distribution according to the production relations of a communist economy, an already communist economy. Right. And that leads us into the next section where he basically does a, you know, I think an extremely good job of analyzing and critiquing the Soviet production system as a state capitalist. You know, wh- one thing that he kind of hammers a lot is that that the private ownership is not a legal category. You know, it's a social relation. Yeah, so we've seen already where he talks about all of the 
not only the kind of like the preconditions for a commodity economy, but why a commodity economy can at that kind of high level can only work in one way, that that's the only logical way that private production processes can be reconciled with each other in a, a at a social level. And then he says, okay, what about these socialist economies? They're Soviet type economies. And so when he's doing this, he is discussing it in terms of the social relations. So he's not interested in the fact that a Soviet type uh, legal constitution might insist that all production apparatus is the common property of the whole population. What he's interested in is the actual social relations, the objective social relations. And so he starts again at the level of the commodity and he says, okay, let's take a look. Now, in order to set this up, he makes a few assumptions and he kind of does the same thing. And I think he's directly trying to replicate what Marx does when he talks about capitalism, uh, that at least classical form of capitalism. Here, LMN assumes a kind of idealized Soviet type economy. And in that idealized Soviet type economy, he assumes all branches of production are nationalized. All production is centrally planned. There's no goods markets. And so you can imagine that uh, unlike in reality, that there was a totally planned economy in the, in the sense that uh, Stalin wrote about in his economic problems of the USSR, except even without the need for the allowance that Stalin makes there, which is that, uh, in fact, the consumer goods part of the economy was based on the law of value. So here LMN allows that the entire thing could be planned in the sense that the adherence to the Soviet type economy would have liked, because obviously they've seen that consumer goods market as an imperfection now so basically the 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 argument that lmn makes is this and it's an argument that's kind of a little bit unusual if you haven't thought about it before he says that the production processes in the soviet type economy actually are private production processes which again sounds a little bit strange when you say it at first but this is what he's saying the the state planners can make a plan but as stalin points out in economic problems to the ussr Money is actually indispensable to the plan. And he says the reason for this is, he says it has to act as a, almost a kind of point system that you have, to be, you have to use money so that you can see which firms are profitable, which firms are loss-making, because it's, it's an endogenous unit of account. You, know? you can't tell that by looking at hundreds of different inputs and outputs in terms of the natural units. You have, to, you have that, sure, with material balances, but you have to use money as well to be able to understand and make comparisons between firms and see which ones are performing better and so on. It's a wonder why Stalin never thought you could use labor time. Right. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. There's a reason. <laughs> but no, uh, so he, th- he thinks in terms of using money as being something fundamental, something that you need for a Soviet type economy. Now, Element says that there's another reason that you need money. Basically, that while money might have been seen as, I think Stalin puts it, an official accounting device, that that's actually a fantasy. And in fact, the real need for money is totally dictated by value, that it serves exactly the same purpose as in a capitalist economy. It's the value form. It performs the same function. In other words, it performs the function of allowing production and distribution to proceed under conditions of private production processes. Now, why are they private production processes? Basically, the the argument he makes is that benefit and advantage, well, he doesn't say this, but of course, including uh, directly monetary benefits for managers and staff and so on, are tied to the performance of enterprise. Because as Stalin says here, the performance of enterprise is the the objective measure of how these firms are doing in in fulfilling, fulfilling the production plan. And so you have to have that if you want to get private production processes 
to do what you want them to do. So the managers want to meet the production quotas because it personally benefits them to do so. And so you mimic what a capitalist firm would do, what a private production process would try to do. Now, that's a very simplified explanation because in reality, it becomes much more messy as to what specific things do you try to get the firm to do? Do you try to get them to produce more goods? Do you try to get them to produce higher value goods? Do you try to get them to produce heavier goods and so on? And they tried everything. But that's the ultimate objective that you're doing here with this kind of planning. And the point LMN is making is that with a Soviet type planning system, you need to have that. You need to have the money economy to simulate what private production processes do in a capitalist economy. you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclassesocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. (laughs) 